Good morning. Uh, my name is Nathan, and it's my great pleasure to serve to you this morning uh, a feast um, that I've been cooking this week. Um, it's in the book of Philippians, and we've been walking through that book, and uh, God's word comes to us as a meal. And so I hope that this meal will strengthen you and sustain you. Um, we've been walking again through the book of Philippians, and so it's my joy to serve you by opening up the word in Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 17, 18, and uh, actually we're going to stop at 17 and, 18, 17, 18, and 19 this morning. So let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is life to us. And so train our hearts to live in accordance with it because we believe it's good. Just as we sang a moment ago. And we believe that because we believe you are good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I was reminded this week of a seminary graduate uh, from a while back whose name was Matt. He was invited to go study in the, in, uh, the country of Scotland, or the place of Scotland. And uh, he went there to study further, and he went and he took up a job as an associate pastor there in a tiny little parish. And a parish is just a small little community there, and instead of spending so much time in his office, the other pastor that he came to serve and the church he came to serve told him to go walk the streets and to go to the homes of the people in his parish and get to know them. Now, this was very odd because Matt was an American and he was used to driving everywhere. He's used to going very quickly and doing life very quickly. He later reflected that he, I think we too, would say that he, he lives in the, quote, tourist generation where we can avoid being known, traveling from place to place, moving through life so quickly, avoiding our fears of being known. We never are known at all. And I think about my own life. I think it's very in keeping with that, very much in keeping with that. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I was in the Atlanta area, Raleigh, and now here. Five cities in my 42 years on this earth, and I think I counted 11 different homes in those five cities. I think about my parents that uh, lived in three different cities uh, in my mom's now 65 years. I think about my grandparents that lived in two cities, two houses their whole life. You see how things are trending towards mobility without the opportunity to be known. And so Matt noticed this fast-paced lifestyle wasn't really like the life of Christ or really like a lot of humans throughout history. And Matt came to see that to know others and to be known by others in the work of ministry, he had to work against shallow novelty and work towards a more slower life. A mentor of his says that, quote, we spend life going 60 miles an hour when it would likely be better for all of us if we learned to go three miles an hour, which is the speed of walking. And so day after day, Matt walked those paths and he met with those people. He spent less time in his office, more time in people's homes. And slowly, the more he got to know them and the more that they got to know him back and forth. And so life at three miles an hour, not 60 miles an hour. A slower life that leads to us being known and our knowing others. Now for a lot of us, that's a scary life. Because it does mean we get known. And for other of us, that sounds like a really boring life. And yet I think most of us would agree though that a slower life with less, uh, which was less touristy and more stable might introduce to us more relationships that we could trust and learn from and grow in. 
And so, as I mentioned, God has ordained for us here in Philippians chapter 3 to meditate on these ideas of knowing people and being influenced by them in good ways and staying away from those that would influence us in bad ways. So this passage here this morning, we are going to see a call to imitate those that imitate Christ. It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to mentoring. It's a call to know and to be known, to be influenced by the right people and to not be influenced by the wrong people. And so according to Paul, this seems to be one of the most important relationships that a Christian could have to keep them on the path to everlasting life and to avoid those that would lead them to the way of destruction. So we're going to meditate on two kinds of people this morning, two kinds of people, the one kind of person that's, again, leading us towards the way of life and the other one that's leading us towards the the way of destruction or death. So let me read for us Philippians chapter three, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So first off, the way of life or the disciples of life, the way of life. Did you notice there that last thing I read? You catch it. We're going to be looking at that passage next week. But did you notice all of those descriptors that Paul uses for that congregation? My brothers, he calls them, whom I love, whom I long for. My joy, my crown, my beloved. We can think back to the beginning of this letter where Paul thanks God in all of his remembrances of his prayers for them. Chapter 1, verse 8, when it says that he yearns for them. Chapter 2, verse 24, he hopes to come and see them himself. So Paul has started this church. He planted this church. He has so much of an investment in his church that he's grown to love them very deeply. And we've seen that that local church loves him very deeply as well by their sending Epaphroditus to him, one of their own, and also sending them all kinds of resources in a place that is so far away from them, off in Rome. Uh, This would not have been easy to travel that far. And so they loved him and wanted to care for him. And so their relationship to Paul and Paul's relationship to them is very deep. Paul has suffered to bring them the gospel. And they have suffered even to care for him and to remind him of the gospel. So there's, a, there's an investment here. Quite literal, quite literal blood, sweat, tears, and time have been invested in this relationship. And that is the reason why Paul wrote in the first place and why he has been so concerned about their being careful with the gospel and where their joy lies. And by the way, Christians, this should be the more normal aspects of our life. We should have, it should be more normal for Christians to be known like this inside of communities of faith. But when Paul says brothers there, we could say brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. This, friends, was not odd to the church there at Philippi, nor was it seen as arrogant to the Philippian believers because they've seen Paul's investment. They know that Paul's life is really worth imitating. And so by Paul's life, they can come to know, they can see what kind of people they ought to be modeling and imitating. 
And ultimately, we know, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, that he is calling to imitate him insofar as he imitates Christ. But Paul does not take this for granted, this relationship, these kind of people that they should be imitating. If we go back and just review this letter, go back and look at all these places, he's told them to imitate these other people based off of their character and their investment. Their character and their investment. We can think back to chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, when Paul says to uh, the church at Philippi, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And remember in verses 6 to 8, he rehearsed the example of Christ, whose humiliation led to his glorification. And he said, sort of do the same thing in following Christ's example. We we can think back to just after that in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, where he highlights Timothy. And note those words. Just flip over there and look at them. Paul says he wants to send Timothy to them. And he tells them Timothy is, quote, note those words, genuinely concerned. Now remember, Timothy was with Paul when he planted this church in the first place. So they know Timothy. He's genuinely concerned for their welfare, as opposed to, chapter 2, verse 21, the others that seek their own interests. But, verse 22, he says, note the words, you know Timothy's proven worth. Again, there's this deep abiding relationship and care for each other as opposed is being set against those that don't care for them ultimately, but just want to use them. Then he highlights all the ways that Epaphroditus was exemplary. And then we get uh, the call here in verse 17 to imitate him and those like him. And then he hits it again in chapter four, verse nine, when he says what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. So Paul is bending over backwards to call them to imitate those that look like Christ, those that genuinely care for them and want to lead them to life. And as we will see again, he's calling them to beware of those that don't look like Christ and are the enemies of Christ. So Paul knows something. He believes something. He's passionate about something that I think we can take for granted. And that is discipleship. Discipleship. And not just discipleship from afar. Paul is passionate about the kind of discipleship that is learned, received, heard, and even seen. In other words, it's up close and personal. It's in a way that you are known and you are making yourself known and can be known. Paul says this because it was modeled, I think, by Christ's investment himself. We think about the thrust of Jesus' ministry. Where did he spend the most of his time? Was it with the crowds that were all around him? No, it was with those 12 men. And in particular, it was the three, there was three inside of that 12 that he was investing his time and his efforts to get to know them. I love the quote from Robert Coleman that says, Jesus was not concerned with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. And so Jesus had crowds follow him, but the thrust of his life was on not discipling crowds, but in discipling a few individuals. It was on him discipling them. That was Jesus' master plan of discipleship and then those disciples peter in particular one of those we read a lot about they spread the gospel and then people respond to the gospel and then what do they do they gather those people in and they teach them and they invest in them they pray for them they serve them they get to know them and vice versa and so we i think though operate in a kind of celebrity culture where we are dazzled by people that are often far from us People we hardly know and people that don't even know us or even care about us at all. I always think it's strange. You all find this strange that like when celebrities go up on like a stage and they get an award and everybody claps and they stand behind the podium 
And somebody says right at the end when everything gets quiet, I love you. And he's like, I love you too. You know, those little moments. And I always think that's a little strange. Like, how do you know that you love them? You know, it's just kind of odd to me. But it's, it's strange in this way. But we, we want to know each other. We want to be more influenced by people that we are known by and those that know us instead of the ones that are so far away from us. So Paul wanted the church to imitate the people who were known to be the genuine article, the real deal. Men and women who not only claimed to follow Jesus, but men and women who actually followed Jesus, that were changed by his love, not just in confession, but in practice, that they could see and touch and feel. Imitate them. Keep your eyes on them who walk, that is, who live according to that example, the example of Christ, the example of the gospel. Now, for that to happen, beloved, you are going to have to place your time, you're going to have to place yourself in proximity to these kinds of people, not only in quantity or not only in quality of time, but also in quantity of time. You're going to have to put yourself around there. So that includes things like church, making sure and making this a priority and also things like community group. But also other kinds of relationships, individual kinds of relationships, one or two or three others as well. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're going, where in the world am I going to fit that in, Nathan? I'm running at 60 miles an hour. And I say, I know, which means that you're going to, if the glory of Christ and growing in grace means that you're going to grow in grace, you're going to probably have to change some things and slow down a bit. It's going to mean that you're probably going to have to say no to some good things and yes to some even better things. It's probably what's going to happen. So in a culture that is so concerned with efficiency, we think that life-changing discipleship can be efficient, and it won't be. It won't be. Life-changing discipleship takes time and it takes effort. It's inconvenient and it's oftentimes hard because as much as we like to believe otherwise, we're messy people, aren't we? Just like everything else that takes time and effort and discipline and is difficult, stuff that really matters. So in the same way, life-changing discipleship is going to work the same way. So, beloved, my question to you this morning is, where are those kinds of people that you are imitating? Who are they? You could write them down on a piece of paper right now. Who would they be? Who are those that you are imitating? Who are those you are keeping your eyes on, as Paul says here? Who are they? How are you how are you orienting your time and your energy to be with them so that you can learn by seeing them? How are you prioritizing those relationships? And then secondly, my question to you also, who are the people you are seeking to imitate Christ out in front of and lead along and pull along? Who are they? Who are those you're looking to and those, who are the kinds of people you're identifying to pull up? Paul's call to imitate, though, friends, is not merely, you should know this as you think about that question, not just looking at those that are merely doctrinal kind of things, not just learning things from the head. I think that was critical to Paul's call here to imitate, but it included more than just imitating someone's mind when you think about these people you're looking at. It also included imitating their hands and their feet. Did you notice what Paul says there? He says, keep your what? Eyes. Not merely your minds, your eyes. That means you need not only to listen and learn from the more mature in settings like this one. That's important. But you need relationships with godly people where you can see them in their homes and in their offices. You need to do this and be these kinds of people to others. And so think about the, what Jesus says was the calling card of his church. What was the calling card? Do you all remember John 13, you hear me quote it all the time. If you've been around a Restoration Church, you probably have it memorized just because you repeat it so much. That's by design. John 13, it's love, right? 
Love is the calling card of God's people. You'll know that they're disciples by the way they what? Love each other. Love each other. And so it's not just doctrinal alone. That doctrine, Christ would invest doctrine into those disciples that would then lead to a kind of lifestyle whereby God's people could be gathered and the world would look at them as salt and light and say there's something different about those kinds of people. What they think, what they believe, how they live that stuff out, how they care for the poor, the weak, the needy. These kinds of things. And so the word for love there, when Jesus says love, is not merely sentimental. That's normally how we think of it. It was more than that. It was sacrificial. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? So it was the teaching of Christ that led them to serve and train others up. That's what this imitation should look like. That's what we should be looking for. And this is why, friends, the church is absolutely, positively critical to the life of the Christian. The local church is critical to the life of the Christian. And when I say church, I'm not just talking about this gathering. I am talking about this gathering, but I'm talking about more than this gathering. The church and the life with the church is critical. Paul says here to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I think the example, by the way, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, is Paul and Timothy. That's the us. But for us to keep our eyes trained on godly examples, Christ-like examples, we have to see them as they are walking. That is, living for Christ in all of its arenas. That's why we need the church to get to know one another and be known by one another. And so Paul understands that to be critical in the life of the Christians, that people are making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ in all aspects, in all frames and aspects to it, not just this one. And so, friend, if you honestly think that you can grow in your love for Christ and work out the salvation that God is working in you by treating the church like some sort of hobby, whenever, kind of showing up and being part of it whenever it's convenient, then, friends, you may not understand Christ. Jesus' mission was the church. Go back and read Matthew 16 later this afternoon. You'll see that. Paul says in Acts chapter 20 that Christ shed his blood to purchase the church. And yes, the church there can mean universal church, all Christians everywhere. But the New Testament, New Testament Christianity in particular, knows nothing of free agent Christians that live their lives largely remote or distant from local churches. Coming in and consuming a worship experience to kind of go out and live the life, the Christian life on their own the rest of the week. That just is not the thrust of biblical teaching. That's not the kind of lifestyle that Paul wanted to see imitated. He's commanding the Philippians, and I think he's commanding us to be known to godly men and women so that they might know us and train us up in the example of Christ. And likewise, that you might get to know others and know them, that you might train them up in Christ. Training us to not conform to the patterns of this world, trainings to conform us to the patterns of the world to come. The world that we claim is our home and our inheritance. Which, of course, that's exactly, you'll notice there, that's exactly where Paul's going to go in the next passage. And so again, Christian, who are these examples that you're following and imitating? And then also, who are the ones you are seeking to imitate Christ out in front of? Who are they? Who are they? And friend, if your answer is someone from the past that you don't live near anymore, listen, I praise God for that. I praise God for that. There's plenty of people like that in my life. But listen, you need more than models from yesterday. You need models for today and for tomorrow. And we need to be the models for today and tomorrow. And if your answer about who those people are, if your answer is you're waiting for those examples to come to you, well, I would ask, are you putting yourself in places consistently in order to be seen and known by them? 
Are you prioritizing and committing yourself to those kinds of relationships? Or are you inconsistent and distant from godly examples? And also, if you're waiting for someone older than you, more mature than you, with knowledge that has, uh, with knowledge that, uh, that can pour also their time and their energy and their ability that can also, not only are they really mature and really godly and really willing to help you, but they also have the ability to adjust their time to your schedule. If you're waiting for that person, you're going to not probably be very happy because you'll never probably find them. You know, it's just hard to find people like that. Because um. <laughs> the reality is we do live at 60 miles an hour and it's hard to find people with, with so much godly maturity that have been walking with Jesus for 30 years and just have tons of time that they can just sort of find around your time and live next to you and just show up whenever you need them. It's going to be hard to find somebody like that. And secondly, guys, just take a look around. How many 50-plus-year-olds do you see sitting in this room? Not many. So if you're, if you're looking for sort of 50-plus-year-olds that have been walking with Jesus for 30 years that have tons of times on your hand, you're probably not going to find them in this church. That's just not how the Lord has chosen to grow this church. Uh, now, we pray for that. We want that. I'm begging for that. We have seen some of that. We want more of it. But the reality is that's not the way the Lord has chosen to grow this particular church. Um, I, again, I pray that he will. But uh, this is not a failure of this church. This is just how the Lord has grown fit, seen fit to grow this church. And you know what? I get excited about that. You want to know why? Because it seems as though the design of Restoration Church, the Lord's hand in it, is to take this congregation and train them to be the disciple makers when you are 50 years old and you're going to be the kinds of folks that are leading all those 25 and 30 and 35-year-olds. Isn't that going to be great? That's our ministry. So 10, 20, 50, 30 years from now, you're going to be the ones in all of those 15, or yeah, maybe 15, 20, 25, 30-year-olds that, man, I'd love to have somebody with 50 years old. You learn this now. That's the fact that we're, we're a factory of discipleship. That's what the Lord is doing at this church. And so my charge to you, Restoration Church, is to be those kinds of people to each other now and grow people up in grace. And while you may not have the kinds of 50-year-olds that have been walking with Jesus for 30 years at your plethora all around, there are tons of people in this church that are growing in grace. Just go find them and spend time with them and drink from the wells that they're drinking from. Ask them who has influenced them. Ask them the books that they've read that have been helpful to them. Ask about their daily habits and the kinds of things they're doing to grow in grace. Ask them how they use their time and their table. And you'll learn and you'll grow. It's happening all around us. So we need all kinds of people if we're going to imitate Christ and follow him, myself included. So let me make that known to this congregation. I have people in my life that I am seeking to imitate, not just to imitate sort of others, seek others to follow train up fathers to follow Christ, but I have people that I look up to in my life. I'm on uh, two pastoral fellowships that I listen to and are part of regularly, monthly. Uh, I have these elders that are happy to rebuke me uh, when that need be. Um, And I listen to them, and I think they would testify that they take it. You can ask my community group brothers, Sam Murphy, Curtis, Matt Hawkins, Matt Lozada, Joe Koch. Ask them, do I invite correction? I feel strong enough to say that. They're going to tell you. They should tell you yes, right, guys? I think I do that. So, listen, I'm, not, I'm putting myself in places where I can learn from others as well as trying to influence others. And I think all of us should be trying to do this. So where is this happening in your life? Who is it? Jesus always had imitations, uh, people he was trying to imitate the glories of God, God out in front of. 
Paul always traveled with people. He brought people along with him to imitate the glories of God with him. So who are those people that you're being an example to? Who are you looking to? And if you're wondering what that example is, again, I told you it's the example of Christ. The example of Christ. If you want to know that, what that is exactly, I know how some of you need lists. So if you're looking for a list of the example, uh, it's not just Jesus. I'll give you a few lists. You ready? Uh, if you're looking for a list of someone you can look to, be modeled by 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. Titus 1, 5 to 9. This is a great one. Romans 12, 9 to 21. So really, if you had to choose just one, that'd be my one. Colossians chapter 3. Those are good lists of, that's the example you're trying to look to. But let me warn you again, just like Paul has not, he just said, right, that he has not obtained all that is in Christ, you too should not expect to find someone that is operating perfectly as a Christian. Again, I tell people all the time, if you are impressed with me, don't be. Talk to my wife. She is very much not impressed with me. All right. So I make mistakes all the time. So you're going to find the people that you're going to look to. They're going to make mistakes. Jesus is the only one that's the king of glory. And so Paul himself has not obtained all of it, nor have I, nor is the person that you're going to surround yourself with. So I would commend to you all of our elders and their wives. I'd commend to you our deacons and our deaconesses. I'd commend to you our community group leaders. All of them. But you should know that a lot of us, our, our schedules are pretty full from doing all this. There are others even outside of that list that I gave you. So don't limit your desire to be discipled to people that have titles and responsibilities. Find anyone that's growing in grace. Initiate those relationships by asking questions. Will you disciple me? Can I spend time with you? And then vice versa, you go, hey, would you like to do this? Would you like to imitate me as I imitate Christ? Or would you like to read the book of Mark together or something? Initiate those conversations and then go and train people up in grace. And lastly, let me say this too. Uh, If you are not a member of a gospel-believing church, either this one or another one, commit to that church. So you've got to make yourself known, and that comes through the process of membership. And so if you've not made yourself known by committing to a local church, then you've not made yourself known. We can't know you, you can't know us, not intimately in the way that we should. And so commit to a local church because the church is the vessel that will keep you on the path to life. Imitate godly examples that's the way of life that's what we've looked at so far but also paul has this thrust of not imitating those uh, that are on the way of death that's the second portion verses 18 to 19 the way of death we've looked at the way of life the disciples of the way of life and here we're looking at the as we entitled the sermon the citizens of heaven the way of death the disciples of death So after so carefully rehearsing the gospel of justification by grace through faith and calling the people to be trained up in that way, Paul now turns to warn the church of those people that are enemies of that way. He calls them there, you'll see in the text, enemies of the cross of Christ. And I want you to know, beloved, take a a look down there, verses 17 and 18. Did you notice that word walk is in both of those verses? You've got those that walk, walk in the example of the cross. There's life. And then here in verse 18, you have those that walk in the example of those that are its enemy. That's death. So either you're walking in the path of life or walking in the path of death. So and I also want you to notice, beloved, that there are that word many. You see that word many there? There are many that are considered enemies of the cross. See it there in verse 18? There are many. In fact, there are so many that Paul says that he has, quote, often told them about these people. See that? 
So there's a common refrain in the Bible that convinces us that we who are in Christ, we are always in every age and every time, we are always going to be the predominant minority. It's often told to us. We can think back to Jesus that told us that wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Same word we have here. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many or most will enter it. And of course, the presence of all of the epistles is to warn them and to sort of correct things where things are going wrong. And so there's all these warnings. That's important to understand because it is, there is a spirit among some Christians that think pastors' concerns about the world or about the concerns maybe in the church, they are often unfounded or too pessimistic. Some people think that about pastors that warn their people of these things. And yet here we find in this passage alone that that view is the one that's unfounded. The view that thinks that there, we shouldn't be warned is the one that's unfounded. A cursory reading of the Bible finds that there are innumerable temptations around us that are seeking to pull us down and diminish the glory of Christ among us. It's all around. So from Satan in the garden to the idols of the Canaanites in the Old Testament to the dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh that Paul just talked about in this passage in chapter 2 here in Philippians. They're all around. Satan is called the God of this world. He is said in 1 Peter 3 to be seeking to devour us like lions, like a lion, trying to take Christians down. And so while it's true that we ought not fear the world, nor should we be negative and pessimistic that we cannot be in the world, we are frequently told to not be of the world and to not conform to its pervasive and harmful patterns which are all around us. And so in light of that, we should regularly thank God. When I was studying this week, we should regularly thank God for this gathering. Because it puts, thank God that he made a seven-day week. And he puts the gathering of God's people on the first day of that week. So that we would be reminded of the truth. So that we wouldn't believe lies and be strewn away. And that kind of God to set up this gathering, to orient our week. It is no coincidence, church family, that Paul regularly refers to the Christian life as a race or as warfare. It's common in the New Testament. And so it's important for us to see then our temptation is not to take these frequent warnings too seriously. I think our temptation would be that we take them too lightly. That's our temptation. Our tendency is to think too lightly of how we are being pulled down. We easily dismiss warnings as unnecessary or even legalistic. We often abuse our freedom in Christ by telling ourselves that we're just being all things to all people so that by all means we might win some. That's sort of the language we use. Our tendency is to be far too casual about our enemies. And so, beloved, it's instructive for us to note that word many and the word often in this passage in verse 18. Many are our enemies and often do we need to be reminded of their ways and their purposes in attempting to destroy us. So let's consider their ways, their fruits, as it were, fruits of death, so that we can spot them and war against them in Jesus' name, by His grace and for His glory. Let's think about them. This is the way of the enemy of the cross of Christ. Whether people know that they're enemies or not, these are the ways that they are trying to disciple us into death that Paul is warning us about. First off, we can note their destiny. Verse 19 is destruction. Their destiny is destruction. Destruction is another word for the judgment of hell. And so those that oppose the gospel are bound for eternal torment. They may be on what appears to be kind of a party bus sort of now, but its destination is destruction. 
That is their end. That is where they are going because they have rejected the true gospel. And so many people I know do not like the doctrine of hell, of destruction. Confessing, some confessing Christians included, they don't like the teaching of it. They find it too mean. They find it too terrible. They find uh, that it's not loving. And so they go on to deny its existence. And so let me first observe that such a thought about denying the existence of hell and this place of destruction, let me first observe that such a thought would be entirely in keeping with the character of the evil one. It has been said that the greatest trick that Satan has ever done is by trying to exist or trying to convince the world that he and hell do not exist. And I would add to that the second greatest trick that he has is trying to convince people that hell is a lot more fun than heaven. That's a lie. But also to deny the presence of hell would be to reject the Bible as authoritative since it talks about it so frequently. And thirdly, I would say to deny the doctrine of hell and destruction uh, would deny the authority of Christ since he talked about it so often. But lastly, denying that doctrine would also remove the possibility of God being love. Since love protects, promotes, and punishes all things that are in opposition to its affection. A judge does not love the neighbor of a convicted serial killer by forgiving the killer and setting him out to do it again. No, he loves his neighbor by putting the killer in jail. And so it is with God. So it is with God. He cannot said to be love if there are no consequences to those that work in opposition to his affections. The reality is, just as Jesus says that if you are not for him, And by for him, I think Jesus means there for his gospel, for his solitary sin atoning death on the cross, his bodily resurrection on the third day for salvation for those that believe. If you are not for that, oriented by that, trusting that as your only hope, then Jesus says, then you are against him. And being against him, Paul says here, means bound for everlasting destruction, everlasting death, not life, but death. Enemies of the cross are bound for destruction since they do not have an atonement for their sin and they have to bear it themselves. John 3.36 is another good reference for that passage. And so their destiny, the enemies of the cross, are their destiny is destruction. But what is their God? Since it's not Christ, then who? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 19, their God is their belly. I think this is an incredibly instructive uh, verse for us here in 21st century America. No matter who people say they worship, the pervading God of our age, of our society, is just the same as it was in Philippi's. It's their own bellies. And by bellies, Paul means here their own passions, their own desires, their own hungers. In other words, their God is themselves and their urges. Truth for them is dictated by whatever they want or whatever they feel. And so if it feels good, it must be good. So those that follow the God of belly think. Therefore, their authority, their God is in their bellies. Their God is their urges. Their God is their hungers. And they follow those. And this could be from the sexual revolutionaries today that tell us that there's nothing wrong with having sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, and however we want. We see it there. To the religious teachers even that teach us that we can worship however we please because God is love and He will let all people into His kingdom even down to the so-called Christian pastors that tell us that we just need enough faith in order to achieve health, wealth, and prosperity. 
preying upon the poor and the rich so that they could get rich themselves. All the way down to the moral revolutionaries that tell us that it is a woman's right to terminate a child in the womb. All of these things are teaching what Paul calls the God of the belly because they affirm the natural urges which do not affirm the love of God. Because they do not accord with the gospel, nor do they uh, accord with the God of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says as he instructs the church in Rome very similarly. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine or teaching that you have been taught. Everything that he's been taught in Romans. Avoid them, Paul says. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive hearts of the naive. Unquote. So do you see, do you see, beloved, how subtle and intoxicating the enemy is? Now, I realize that when I say some of these things, I realize when I speak these things, I sound either like some backwoods, unprogressive, narrow-minded bigot. Or, on the other hand, maybe I sound like some kind of legalistic, mean-spirited fool. But friends, my heart is to imitate that of Paul's as we read there in verse 18. Look at it. That's my desire. To speak of these things with tears. It's not an arrogant, prideful judgment. With tears, Paul is saying this. There's the posture. There is no joy in watching people walk in the way of destruction. Any more than it is joyful to watch cars go right off the edge of a bridge when I know that it's down. But friends, if it is true that Christ is Lord and we are not, and if it's true that hell is real and so is heaven, then it would be the most unloving thing I could do to know those things, to know the answer to those things, and not warn those that are in opposition to the teaching of the gospel, and particularly you, the church that I love. As Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6, He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So there is love, Paul says, so there's love and there is teaching that swerves away from faith and love. And as Paul says here, are bound for destruction. The God of our bellies is a terrible God, friend, because it lies about love. Love does not affirm what is in opposition to the holiness of God. It does not affirm what is in opposition to the gospel and therefore what is bad for us. That's not what love does. Now we see love most clearly, 1 John 4 says, on the cross of Christ. That's where love can be seen most clearly. That hate sin so much that Christ was willing to destroy it by allowing Himself to be destroyed. That's love. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's love. Radical, big love that hates sin enough to do something about it for us. Not affirm it. And so I encourage you, if this is describing, if you're reading this, thinking about this, this describes you, my plea to you, friend, would be to turn away from the God of your belly from the God of your passions and hungers. Turn to the God that liberates you from yourself and leads you into life-giving love. 
I assure you that Christ is a better Lord. And the way that I know that is because the God of your belly is leading you to destruction. You're not satisfied, are you? Christ is a good and better God. Serve him. Follow him. Do not believe those lies that you're being told. Christ is being honest with you. Even in this moment, he's being honest with you. He's telling you the truth. He has a genuine proven worth in his life on the cross. Listen to him. Follow him. Christ was willing to be destroyed so that you would not have to be. That's love. That's the truth. And so these are the enemies of the cross. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. And thirdly, they glory in their shame. This simply means that they find joy in what should be shameful to them because it's shameful to God. And it's shameful to God because it opposes who God is and the good life that God has designed for his people. Therefore, beloved, find godly men and women who will not lead you into situations where you will have cause to enjoy what is shameful. That's what the disciples of death want to do. They try to bring you into situations where you're going to be led to enjoy what is shameful to God. They make movies and songs. They write blogs. They throw parades and protests. They create podcasts that are shameful to God and therefore lead people to destruction preying upon the God of the belly. Don't follow them. It's death there. Go back and read Proverbs 5 this afternoon and see what happens when you follow the God of the belly. And so therefore, it'd be wise of us who are in Christ to be careful, to be careful, listen, to be careful about what we consume and what we participate in. Be discerning, brothers and sisters, about the jokes that you laugh at, the websites that you read, the songs that you sing, the movies that you watch, the friends that you surround yourself with. Without your noticing it, they may be training you to enjoy what is shameful to God and therefore what is bad for you. And God loves you enough this morning to warn you of such things. And so this is how you can identify enemies of the cross. They follow natural urges. They gloat in guilt. They glory in what God finds is shameful. Their end is their destruction. And finally, they set their minds on earthly things. So this is in opposition again to what Paul has been talking about in the resurrection. What he will talk about next week in verse 20. This is in opposition to that. So enemies set their minds on earthly things as opposed to those who we should imitate that set their minds on heavenly things. So if you read this passage literally, it would say, and they think earthly. Sort of what it's saying there. In other words, the enemies of the cross think more like earth than like the new earth in Christ Jesus. It's how they think. They kind of see the world in opaques. They don't see through it. They just see this for all that it is. They are stuck in the urges of the here and now and they are not aware of what is to come. They're not thinking about it. They are akin to the leadership of the Titanic who are so focused on their agenda that they do not know that there's an iceberg up ahead. And so those who are fellow imitators of Christ that have been changed by his love, they have gotten off the ship of the Titanic because they desired a better ship, a better city, since they know that there's that that ship, the Titanic is bound for destruction. They get off of it and they get on the ship that leads to a better city, a better home. See, the disciples of those who oppose the gospel want you to see nothing but what is in front of you. And they want you to pay attention to whatever fancies you except Christ at least the Christ that would cause you to train you up in righteousness. 
The disciples of death are guided by the here and now. The citizens of earth are guided by the here and now, as opposed to the imitators of Christ that live in the here and now, but they are guided by the there and not yet. That's us. We're guided by the there and not yet. The author of Hebrews, I think, says it so well when he talks about the imitators of Christ. And when he says, Hebrews eleven sixteen, desire those who love Jesus, they desire a better country. Not the citizens, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God, note the language again, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a better city. But not the enemies of the cross. In keeping with their master, their God is of this world. Their God is their belly, their hungers, their passions. And so they establish as many treasures here as they can, not in the heaven to come, not in the glories of Christ. And so this is the picture. This is the snapshot. This is the way of death. They are the enemies of the cross. Therefore, their end is destruction. They're disciples of destruction. They, they can be seen in their fruit, in their teaching. They are guided by their urges. They persistently enjoy what God hates. And they are oriented towards this world as it is now. And not the heavenly world that is to come. And Paul says here in this passage, do not look to these people or walk in their ways. He says, find godly men and women and imitate them as they imitate Christ. Slow down and make yourself known to such people as they become known to you. Look, listen, and learn from them and lead others in the same. Walk in the way that Jesus says is the fullness of joy. Though we have to be mindful of the fact that way of fullness of joy may mean pain to you. It did to Jesus. And never forget, though, brothers and sisters, as you, as you make disciples, as you seek to imitate Christ and others, and as you are looking to other imitators that are discipling you, as you do that, never forget. This is important. Don't miss this. Never, ever, ever forget to look to Christ. He is the true imitator. He is the one of whom we imitate. We think about Hebrews that says he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one. He's the one you have to ultimately look to. Do not, uh, do not lift up those of whom you follow, nor should you think of yourself too highly. Look to Christ. He's the one that we're after. He's the one that has life. He's the one that has everlasting life. We are nothing, all of us, are nothing but poor beggars, and we found bread in the bread of life, Christ the Lord. He's the one that we're looking to. He's the one that will strengthen us and sustain us through difficult times. He's the one we ultimately want to imitate. Because he is our life. And we will hold fast to him. And soon enough, beloved, we will be home. And we will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will say, yes, indeed, this earth is better than that one. And we will look and enjoy and bask in the glory of God in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our brother. Thank you for not only his example, but for his power and the resurrection. Thank you that he has changed us from the inside out. God, thank you for such a great salvation. 
I pray that those that do not believe would come to believe today and find Christ to be their Lord and no longer follow their own bellies. And we that are in Christ, God, I pray, I thank you for the many people in this room, in this congregation, that are the kinds of people that can be imitated. And a church that's not too big, God, you've given us a bountiful blessing of people that ought to be imitated. Thank you for that. And we pray for more. And God, I pray for those that need to find other relationships whereby they can be uh, imitators of Christ as they follow others that are imitating Christ. I pray for those kinds of relationships to begin if they haven't already. I pray that people would take more seriously the call to make themselves known to others and them to them so that they would grow up in grace. I pray that we would be a culture, we would be a city, as it were, at Restoration Church, a factory of disciple-makers that 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we would look back and see your fingertips of work and grace in the lives of these people as they become the kinds of imitators that so many are now following. Thank you, God. We believe that that's what you're working and doing here for your good pleasure. And finally, God, we do pray that we would avoid those whose enemies who are enemies of the cross. God, give us discerning eyes because so many of them, God, we are reminded of the teaching in Corinthians that tells us that the, that the devil is an angel of light. Give us discerning eyes so that we would know who to follow and who to avoid. And God, we do pray for those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whether they be here this morning or somewhere else in our city or around the world. May they come to see the end. May they come to see destruction. And may they find the infinite glory of Christ that was destroyed for sinners. And may they take up and follow him. God, thank you for grace. And thank you for a better country. And may we not live for this one. We look forward to the day when you return. We pray it would be soon. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.